This is Shakespeare Closely Read. In this podcast, I read the works of William Shakespeare and other authors in the public domain. In addition to reading these works in their entirety, I will stop frequently to comment on the text, its meaning, and lessons to be drawn. This is not a program for debate over who really wrote Shakespeare's works, whether he was a Catholic, or to dispute his sexuality. Rather, this is a place for lovers of Shakespeare's words, 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 to quote Hamlet. I delight in the beauty of his language and believe through this beauty we can find truth and how to live a virtuous life. I hope this podcast can help students understand Shakespeare better and how to understand his sometimes difficult language. Maybe you can use it to help you write papers or study for tests. I will do my best to read the plays word for word, stopping frequently to comment on the meaning of particular words or phrases. Shakespeare is well known for puns. To me, that is just another way of saying that frequently there are double or even triple meanings in the words, each meaning supporting and drawing more meaning out of the other, synergy in action. I will not attempt to alter my voice or read differently for, for different characters, though I will try to read with meaning. I may identify a character before or after a line if I think it will help understanding. And I hope it's clear where the text ends and where my interpretation begins. Drop me an email at shakespeareclosely at gmail.com if you have questions or would like some help. And speaking of Hamlet, what better place to start the first podcast episode? Hamlet is not only the greatest play in the English language, the most performed and the most enduring, but I believe it is the greatest literary work in human history. I'm not including the Bible as a work of literature. Why is Hamlet so great? The themes are remarkable. It's a ghost story, a murder mystery thriller, above all, a political thriller. Yet it is the words, particularly in Hamlet's speeches, that true greatness lies. I have been blessed with being able to read and study Hamlet many times. I have a BA degree in English literature and history, but not hindered by any further academic qualifications. I have seen many live Hamlet productions all the way from community theater to Broadway and on to London's West End and the Globe. I will comment from time to time on how theatrical or motion picture productions handled scenes and staging. And by the way, Branagh's full version of Hamlet is by far the best film. My wife has patiently endured my whispering during Hamlet productions that something has been cut out or is presented out of order. There's none of that in Branagh's Hamlet. You might want to grab your own text of Hamlet, either from your bookshelf or online. Another advantage of being in the public domain is that there are many um, versions of Hamlet that you can draw from and, uh, and read along and, uh, and see if you can draw your own meanings uh, out of the text. So with that, let us begin. Act one, scene one, Elsinore, a platform before the castle. Enter two sentinels, first Francisco, who paces up and down at his post, then Bernardo, who approaches him. Who's there? Nay, answer me. Stand and unfold yourself. Uh, so there we see the first uh, hint that something is not going on that is right, the unfold yourself. Uh, it could be taken as an object unfolding, uh, perhaps a letter or something like that, or something hidden. Um, there's a lot of imagery of things being hidden and unrevealed throughout the play. Long live the king. Bernardo, he. You come most carefully upon your hour. 
uh, that, of course, that can mean that he's just on time or carefully or he snuck up on him. Uh, again, started, sort of setting the tone of hiddenness. It is now struck 12. Get thee to bed, Francisco. For this relief, much thanks. Tis bitter cold, and I am sick at heart. Uh, the word relief is interesting. Uh, of course, one sentinel relieves um, another, and he's tired and, and wants to go home and go to bed. So he's being relieved in, in that respect as well. Have you had quiet guard? Not a mouse stirring. I've wondered if it's possible that this was saying uh, as quiet as a mouse uh, came from that line. Well, good night. If you meet, if you do meet Horatio and Marcellus, the rivals of my watch, bid them make haste. Now, they're the rivals of his watch. Uh, there's a lot of political rivalry that's going on in this, and uh, rivals can also here just have the meaning of, of their taking place uh, in the in the watch with him. But I think there's a conscious use of the word rivals uh, to describe them there, even though they're, they're, as it turns out, they're not actually rivals. But there's a great deal of rivalry going on in the play. I think I hear them. Stand, ho, who is there? Friends to this ground and liegemen to the Dane. Give you good night. Oh, farewell, honest soldier. Who hath relieved you? Bernardo hath my place. Give you good night. Now, Francisco says that Bernardo hath his place. Now, obviously, that can mean just that he uh, is taking over for him from the watch. But once again, we are setting the stage for political rivalry. Uh, an office, a political office, is frequently called a place. And so we, we have the idea that someone is taking someone's place. And that's one of Hamlet's dilemmas, is that... Uh, Claudius has taken his rightful place as king. Hola, Bernardo, say, what is Horatio there? A piece of him. Welcome, Horatio. Welcome, good Marcellus. What has this thing appeared again tonight? I have seen nothing. Horatio tis, says tis but our fantasy, and will not let belief take hold of him, touching this dreaded sight twice seen of us. Therefore, I have entreated him along with us to watch the minutes of this night, that if again this apparition come, he may approve our eyes and speak to it. Tush, tush, twill not come. Sit down a while, and, and let us once again assail your ears that are so fortified against our story, what we have two nights seen. Well, sit we down, and let us hear Bernardo speak of this. Last night of all, when yon the same star that westward from the pole had made his course to illumine that part of heaven where now it burns. Um, he's speaking of the moon there. Marcellus and myself, the bell then beating one. And that's a bit of an unusual image there with the bell beating one. It's usually the bell striking or ringing. Uh, but he has it beating there. Um, drum is usually what, what beats. I don't know if there's any special meaning, meaning there other than we are going to hear about the warlike preparations very soon. Enter ghost. Peace. Break thee off. Look where it comes again. In the same figure, like the king that's dead. Okay, so we have a reference there to uh, Hamlet, the king's death. Thou art a scholar. Speak to it, Horatio. Scholars were supposed to be able to know uh, about how to speak to spirits safely. 
there was a, a thought at the time that it was very dangerous um, to speak with spirits, and uh, it still might be true. Looks are not like the king, market Horatio, most like it harrows me with fear and wonder. It would be spoke to. Speak to it, Horatio. What art thou that usurps this time of night? Okay, usurps. Um, there's a usurpation which is going on in the play where Claudius usurped the throne. So it might be a little foreshadowing there. Together with that fair and warlike form in which the majesty of buried Denmark. Okay, so a couple of things with the majesty of buried Denmark. Um, one is Denmark itself is seen to be buried in with the death of the king. There's an identification there of the king with his country. And um, the majesty is buried. Uh, the murder, though they don't know it's murder at this point, was such that um, Denmark's honor at 12, you could say, has been buried also. Did sometimes march. By heaven, I charge thee, speak. It is offended. See, it stalks away. Stay, speak, speak. I charge thee, speak. Exit ghost. Tis gone and will not answer. How now, Horatio, you tremble and look pale. Is not this something more than fantasy? What think you on it? Before my God, I'm, I might not disbelieve without the sensible and true avouch of mine own eyes. Is it not like the king, as thou art to thyself? Such was the very armor he had on when he, the ambitious Norway, combated. Okay, so here's the first reference to the previous war with Norway. So frowned he once when in an angry parl, uh, that's from the... Uh, French parlay, probably meaning to uh, to speak, could be. He smoked the sledded Pollocks on the ice. Tis strange. Okay, there we have a reference also to uh, another war uh, with Poland, uh, which will be commented on um, later when Fortinbras, the prince of Norway, goes to war against Poland. Thus twice before, and jump at this dread hour, with, with martial stock hath he gone by our watch. In what particular thought to work I know not, but in the gross and scope of mine opinion, this bodes some strange eruption to our state. Good now, sit down and tell me, he that knows, why this same strict and most observant watch so nightly toils the subject of the land, and why such daily cast a brazen cannon and foreign mart for implements of war? Why such impress of shipwrights, whose sore task does not divide the Sunday from the week? What might this what might be toward that this sweaty haste doth make the night joint labor with the day? Who is it can inform me? Okay, nice, little interesting speech from Marcellus there. It's a strict and observant watch that they're doing, probably more guards out than usual. Nightly toils the subject of the land. And, you, know, you should be resting at night instead of toiling. The daily cast of brazen cannons. Brazen is an interesting word as well. It's not even really uh, bronze, it's brass um, and sort of showy. Uh, rather than um, something that might endure. Foreign mart for implements of war. They're involving foreigners instead of just their own work. Impressive shipwrights, sore tasks. 
does not divide the Sunday from the week. Now, not only are they offending nature with uh, not dividing day and night, they're offending God by working on the Sabbath, which was seen as a very serious uh, sin at the time. Uh, that included even after the Reformation. And the sweaty haste. Um, and again, we return to the beginning of the of the speech: night joint labor with the day. Now we're going to see recurrent themes of things being out of joint and ill joined. And uh, the night is obviously very different from the day. And here they're being made, trying to be made one and the same, and that's not right. That can I, at least the whisper goes so, because they've got whispers through their land. Um, this is not good either when people are whispering and uh, repeating rumors and things like that. It's not good for the state. Our last king, whose image even now appeared to us, was, as you know, by Fortinbras of Norway. Thereon pricked on by most emulent pride, dared to the combat to which our valiant Hamlet, for so this side of our known world esteemed him, did slay this Fortinbras, who by a sealed compact, well ratified by law and heraldry, did forfeit with his life all those his lands which he stood seized of to the conqueror, against which a moiety competent was gauged by our king, which had returned to the inheritance of Fortinbras had he been the vanquisher, as by the same camard and carriage of the article design. This his fell to Hamlet. Now, sir, okay, but let's stop here and talk a little bit about what went before. Um, so Hamlet and Fortinbras of Norway, now this is the old Hamlet, our Hamlet's father was the king. He was going to war with Norway, Fortinbras uh, was the king. They decided to settle their war by single combat, which uh, might not be a bad idea. Perhaps we should still keep that present today. And they, in essence, bet their lands um, on this. Apparently not their whole kingdoms, as we're going to see, uh, but, but some lands at least. And um, so Hamlet the king won and slew Fortinbras. And so he got the lands. Uh, to the inheritance of Fortinbras. Um, now, another rather interesting, um, I don't know if it's coincidence or not, Hamlet, the dead king, his son was named Hamlet. Fortinbras of Norway, the slain king, his son was Fortinbras as well. Now, this sets up a comparison between the sons, between Hamlet the son and Fortinbras the son. They behave in very different ways about the death of their fathers, um, which we will see. Okay, so more about young Fortinbras now. Now, sir, young Fortinbras, of unimproved metal hot and full, hath in the skirts of Norway here and there, shocked up a list of lawless resolutes for food and diet to some enterprise that hath a stomach in it, uh, which is no other, as doth well appear unto our state, but to recover of us by strong hand, in terms compulsory, those foresaid lands so by his father lost. And this, I take it, is the main motive of our preparation, the source of this our watch, and the chief head of this post-haste and rummage in the land. Okay, so um, Fortinbras is going out and, and, um, and recruiting 
uh, young soldiers in the skirts of Norway, it says. Um, so that's a rather uh, harsh image uh, of the time that, that Norway had, uh, had skirts, if you will. And uh, he's sharked up a list of Wallace Resolutes. That is, he, he's going out and recruiting these, these soldiers, but he sharked them up uh, like the fish. And sharks, of course, are known for their great appetites. And these, um, these young soldiers are, are, have got for food and diet. So the image of the shark there um, is, is for food and diet. And uh, Shakespeare finishes out the image that um, some enterprise that hath a stomach in it. So uh, three lines of food imagery there. Uh, and then goes on to say that uh, Fortin Ross wants to recover the lands lost by his father. I think it be no other, but even so. Well, may it sort that this portentous figure comes armed through our watch, so like the king that was, and is the question of these wars. A moat it is to trouble the mind's eye. Okay, a moat is a little speck of dust, uh, which is actually a rather strange thing uh, for Horatio to say because it's extremely troubling, and a moat is seen as like a little speck of dust. There's an image from, from the Bible where, where Christ says, remove the beam from your own eye, and that's a, a log or something like that, so you can take the moat out of your, uh, out of your brother's eye. In the most high and palmy state of Rome, uh, Rome is, is much further south than Denmark, and they have palm trees, so that's what's meant by the palmy state of Rome. A little ere the mightiest Julius fell, that's Julius Caesar, um, another play by Shakespeare, by the way. The grave stood tenantless, that is, um, uh, if a tenant is someone who rents a house, and the graves um, stood tenantless. That's the, the dead were resurrected. Um, and the image of a tenant is rather, rather interesting there. It's like you're not a, a permanent occupant of your, uh, of your grave. You're, the resurrection was expected. So it would be more like somebody rented rather than stay there permanently. <clears throat> and the sheeted dead did squeak and gibber in the Roman streets. As starts as stars with trains of fire and dews of blood, disasters in the sun, and the moist star upon whose influence Neptune empire stands. Uh, that's the moon. That's a different image for the moon, the second one we've had in the play. Uh, was sick almost to doomsday with eclipse. And even the like precurse of feared events. Okay, so... Uh, Signs of disaster, you've got the dead coming forth from their graves. I guess we would call them zombies. Um, and stars with, with trains of fire, that's comets. Um, disasters in the sun, that would be an eclipse and lunar eclipse as well. Um, all those things are happening. As harbingers preceding still the fates and prologue to the omen coming on have heaven and earth together demonstrated unto our climatures and countrymen. Um, omens were, were very much believed in then, and, and we're not so much better. People still believe that uh, things like weather are connected to our activities, um, and things like uh, 
uh, comets and so forth are are seen as as harbingers of bad things. It wasn't that long ago that the Heaven's Gate cult thought a comet, the appearance of a comet, was a sign of doomsday, and they committed suicide. And prologue to the omen coming on. Have heaven and earth together demonstrated unto our climatures and countrymen. Inner ghost again. But soft, behold, lo, where it comes again. I'll cross it, though it blasts me. Stay, illusion. Okay, cross it can mean he's just going to step in front of it. He could have also used the sign of the cross. Uh, frequently, that was used to drive demons away. If thou hast any sound or use of voice, speak to me. If there be any good thing to be done that may to thee do ease and grace to me, speak to me. If thou art privy to thy country's fate, that is, if you know it, um, privity of contract is a legal term, meaning you, you actually have a direct contract with someone, which haply foreknowing may avoid, oh, speak. Or if thou hast abhorred in thy life, extorted treasure in the womb of earth, that's in a hole, for which they say you spirits oft walked in death, the cock crows. Speak of it, stay and speak, stop it, Marcellus. Shall I strike at it with my partisan? Okay, that means a spear, but it's also a political term. A partisan is, is a uh, proponent of a particular cause. Do, if it will not stand, tis here, tis here, tis gone, exit ghost. We do it wrong being so majestical, uh, that's again the reference to the king, to offer it the show of violence, not actual violence, because um, it's, it's a ghost, you can't hit it. Uh, for it is as the air, invulnerable to our vain blows and our vain blows malicious mockery. Okay, who are they making mockery of themselves or the ghost? It doesn't say. It was about to speak when the cock crew, and then it started like a guilty thing upon a fearful summons. Uh, now we're going to find later on that they don't use the term exactly that the the ghost is is probably in purgatory. And so, therefore, his sins have not been absolved, and he's a guilty thing being summoned back to his place of punishment. I have heard the cock that is a trumpet to the, to the morn doth with his lofty and shrill-sounding throat awake the god of day, and at his warning, whether in sea or fire, in earth or air, tis extravagant, and the, the extravagant and erring spirit hies to his confines. And of the truth herein, this present object made probation. Okay, Horatio, long way of saying for him that um, the sun's rising and the rooster crowed. Uh, so they, the rooster crowed and they saw that the sun was coming up. Also, there's an appearance in there of the four elements. It says sea or fire in earth or air. That's water, fire, earth, air. Uh, rhetorical trick Shakespeare was, was frequently doing using lists of things like that, which the ancients also used. It faded on the crowing of the cock. Some say that ever against that season come, wherein our Savior's birth is celebrated. Oh, that's Christmas he's talking about. The bird of dawning singeth all night long. And then they say, no spirit dare stir abroad. The nights are wholesome. Then no planet strike, no fairy takes, nor witch hath power to charm. So hallowed and so gracious is that time. So I have heard and do in part believe it. But look. The morn in russet mantle clad walks o'er the dew of yon high eastward hill. Break we, up, break we our watch up, and by my advice, let us impart what we have seen tonight unto young Hamlet, 
for upon my life this spirit dumb to us will speak to him. Do you consent? We shall acquaint him with it as needful in our loves, fitting our duty. Okay, so uh, the morn and russet clad, that's a really just fancy way of saying the sun's coming up. Let's do it, I pray, and I this morning know where we shall find him most convenient. And that's the end of scene one, and we pick up the next time in scene time, in scene two, where they will find Hamlet with the rest of the council. The king, the queen, will get to meet some of the other, other important uh, players in the play. And uh, we will have Hamlet's first great speech, soliloquy as they call him, because he's speaking to himself, though frequently you think he, he might understand that he is being under overheard by others. And I call this the um, I must hold my tongue um, speech. It's a great one. So until next week, uh, keep reading your Shakespeare. Goodbye.